0: Ryan McLaren is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. A former college English teacher and pastor, he is a passionate advocate for a new kind of Christianity, which we are grateful for. Just, generous, and working with people of all faiths for the common good. He is a core faculty member of the Living School and podcaster with Learning How to See, which are both part of the Center for Action and Contemplation, which many of you are familiar with. Brian is the author of many books, including Do I Stay Christian, which we are here to talk about today. So Brian, we are so honored and grateful that you are with us. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Great to meet you all.
0: Of all I just want to say, we loved reading this book together because we were able to say aloud so many things that you brought to light that we had either been thinking or had thought it some some sometime in the past, but we were too afraid to say those things. And so your book gave us permission and a starting place to have these conversations. And what you did for us, or, or I'll speak for myself, what I think you did for me was you named both the heartbreak and the hope of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And living in that tension, I think, is really the most authentic way to be Christian or a person of faith. And so um, you gave us permission to hold both of those things together, especially in this this time where it's so necessary to to really sift out what is uh, fruitful and useful for us as we move towards this new form of Christianity. So we thank you for that gift. Before we get to a couple of those things, I want to start with a question that we're here to discuss. Do I stay Christian? Why was this an important question for you to answer at this time? Mm.
1: Well, uh, you you know, I, I mentioned at the end of the book that in the process of writing the book, this is obvious maybe to everybody else, but it wasn't so obvious to me that this really has been kind of a theme of all my writing, which is a sense of what I call conflicted religious identity, um, that there was parts of my religious identity that were so much part of me, I I could never I could never throw them away or tear them out of me without, I don't know, doing damage to whoever it is that I am. But there were other parts that also I was constantly having to do gymnastics or maybe even acrobatics, you know, to, to accommodate. So I think this has been a a personal challenge for me. If I'm going to stay Christian, how am I going going to do it? And I I don't know if you feel this way, Chelsea, and if there's any other uh, clergy uh, on the call, but sometimes I think a lot of us become pastors because we feel like maybe I'll have a little power to set the rules of the game (laughs) to be one that I want to play because I'm not sure I could live by some other people's uh, parameters, you know? When I was a pastor, which I left the pastorate almost 17 years ago now, I was a pastor for 24 years. So many of the people in my congregation were people who had left Christian faith. The majority, I lived in Maryland, and Maryland is a historically Catholic state. So the largest group of people in our church were people who were born Catholic and then had left shortly after confirmation very often back in those days. And then they were, maybe they'd gotten into 12 step recovery or something else happened in their life. And they had been invited to our church. And so their question of Christian identity was, it was an issue. It wasn't a given, you know? And then we also had a lot of people in our church who would say to me something like, This is my last stop. I think I'm on my, my way out of Christianity. If there's no hope here, I'm out. So I think it was always part of the people that I was dealing with. But in recent years, and uh, just to be very honest, especially since 2016, here in the United States, it felt like there were forms of Christianity that were doing their very, very best to drive an awful lot of other people away. And I think that intensified, um, intensified it for me. And maybe one last thing I should say is that in the years before I wrote the book, I think a lot of people would be shocked how many pastors are having a deep crisis of faith. The number of them that have confided to me also is motivation for me to, to write.
0: Yeah. And you tell the one story about Seth in the book about, you know, running the marathon and, and feeling like the people are dropping off right before we get to that finish line. Yes. I, I so resonated with that story and just the, desire for us all to come along and get across that finish line. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I really resonated with that story. In a, in a virtual summit called The Future of Christianity that you participated in, I think just in August, uh, through Center for Action and Contemplation, you say that some people might find it dangerous that we are even asking this question. Why do you think this is such a contentious question or idea for people?
1: Yeah, boy, I, I should find out who said this um yeah i i i remember the quote but i can't remember who said it but somebody somewhat recently said that for several cent for for many centuries of the last 2000 years it took more courage for a person to not identify as a christian than to identify as one in other words they were part of a, a christian society and the, th- the threats and dangers of in any way disaffiliating were so great that, you know, everybody would comply. And then he said, but we're moving into a time where it feels like it's taking more and more courage to identify with Christianity for all the complex reasons I think we, we all understand. But what ends up happening is people who are in a Christian community, many of our Christian communities become, I don't know, more defensive. Or more nervous or they feel embattled. If you disaffiliate, they're done with you. And so the feeling that it, you're not just making a decision about your theological beliefs or your religious identity, you end up making a decision about whether you're accepted in your family, whether you're accepted, it, whether you have to find a whole new circle of friends, mm-hmm. and so on. Last year, when my book Faith After Doubt Doubt came out, mm-hmm. I, I found out that a lot of Mormons were reading. Uh, the book and a group of uh, uh, someone contacted me and said I I lead a group a secret group of 75 young Mormons um, who have just read your book. Part of the way that you become part of this group is you have to make a vow that you will never disclose the names of anybody else in the in the group. And we wondered if you'd be willing, uh, on condition of confidentiality, to you know meet with us, kind of like we're doing now. So we we having this meeting. And a young woman spoke up and she said, Brian, just to give you an idea of the people you see on this screen, let me tell you my story. She said, if I told the leader of my congregation that I was reading your book and that the leader of my congregation knew what the book was about, I would be disfellowshipped today. And by tomorrow, my children would be asked to leave the Mormon school that they go to. By the end of the week, word word would get out in our town and nobody would patronize my husband's business. So within a week, we would need to have plans to move to a new city, find a new home, find new work, um, because to deviate would would be that big a cost for us. So and it's not just that way for Mormons. There are an awful lot of Southern Baptists and Roman Catholics and Pentecostals and non-denominational Christians who feel that same way too. So I and you know for for presbyterians I think it's hard to imagine that kind of a thing or methodists or lutherans but you wouldn't have to go back but a couple hundred years. In fact, even when my parents were young, they told me that if a Methodist married a Presbyterian it was considered uh, an interreligious and interfaith marriage, right? And and it would be Horrifying for people to think about that. So these kinds of questions have very far-reaching ramifications.
0: Yeah, I've I've had friends that have the same. They do these things in secret. They read books in secret and yeah. they have conversations. But I wonder if I, I keep having this hope, um, and I keep saying it because I keep hoping I'm manifesting it somehow in the universe that this <laughs> wave is coming where. Pastors are having these. Pastors yes. are reading your books, and they—they're maybe saying something from the pulpit because they feel they need to. But they're yes. having the same crisis of, like you mentioned before, crisis of faith and ways of wanting a more expansive Christianity, wanting yes. to move into these, um, this new form of Christianity. I keep thinking there's just this way that's just waiting to come that really is just going to open up the floodgates for us.
1: Well, Chelsea, it's—I—I I think you're right. I think you're right, but I think we're in different time zones mm. so it happens in different denominations at different times and it takes and and for the first 10 people it's grueling and for the next 100 people it's super difficult and for the next 1000 people it's difficult and for the next 10000 people it's a little less difficult you know what i mean to the, mm. the, the breaking changing the the norm and, and the the narrative is it's a long process, and it's the hardest for the first few people
0: I wanted to know who was your audience when you were writing this book? who did Who were you hoping would pick it up? And as you wrote it and it's now living out in the universe, has that changed?
1: I mean, one way it's changed is, you know, when I was writing it, I was really only thinking about christians and and uh, you know, it's kind of regular Christians. And it's been very interesting to hear from I guess, Christian adjacent groups like Mormons and so on, I find out, oh, this is going on out there. I was contacted by, yeah, I probably shouldn't mention this, but I was, I, I, I'll be discreet here, but I was contacted by the leaders of a, a, a group that most, if not all of you have heard of, that's one of those Christian adjacent groups who basically said, we're, we're going through the same things and I think we're going to end up at the same place. I was contacted by a leader, a Hindu leader who grew up Southern Baptist. And this person talked about how, uh, well, the, the, the book meant a lot uh, to, to this person. So it's interesting to realize that in some ways, the struggles of religious identity are remarkably similar in many different religious settings. Um, years ago, I read a book by a Canadian Muslim feminist lesbian journalist there's a series of adjectives okay. that a lot of people wouldn't expect to hear together um Irshad Manji and she wrote a book called The Trouble with Islam and it was her in a sense saying I'm Mus- I'm Muslim I'm not leaving my faith but I'm going to be honest about who I am and the problems I have with my faith and one of the things um Chelsea that's happened in the last you know however many years is that Podcasts to me have become the new place for people to go public and have it, this. It, it, a podcast is kind of weird because, in one sense, it's public, anybody can listen to it. But in another sense, you tend to only listen to it alone in your car or taking a walk or something. And it's a way for people to eavesdrop on conversations that they need to have happen. So I think what that's doing is just what you said before. A lot of people had these questions in private and they didn't know anybody they could mention them to. And now they find out, oh, there's more and more people asking these questions. I don't have to be so secretive anymore. So I, I guess I would say it just felt like the audience uh, grew, you know, in the sense that there are more people out there having these qualms and questions than I, I realized.
0: Yeah. And the t- I mean, even the title of the book, Do I Stay Christian? I think is something that bounces around and people oh. face heads, you know, anyway. And I wonder if you ever um, run into this tension of saying, um, I'm Christian, but not that kind of Christian. And like, (laughs) what does that look like? Or how fair is that? I always struggle with how fair that is. But um, I'm wondering how you respond to that.
1: Well, you know, it's the first thing that comes to mind when you say that, Chelsea, is I just think, gosh, I'm an American, but I'm not that kind of American. Mm -hmm. And I'm male. I'm not that kind of male. I'm cisgendered and straight. But I'm not that kind of cisgendered and straight. You know, it yeah. feels like on so many different, in so many different ways, our identities are contested. And uh, years ago, a Christian writer from Canada, uh, whose name I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting a lot of names tonight, he said it used to be that we lived in a pluralistic world where you had Catholics meant this and Protestant meant this and Jewish meant this and Buddhist meant this. He said, we don't just live in a pluralistic world anymore. We live in a fragmenting world where Christian Protestants are fragmenting into many different kinds of things and that are mutually hostile. You know, it's not just they're, they're opposite and oppositional. And Catholics, who would have guessed 10 or 15 years ago that the kind of schism that's being threatened by Pope Francis's enemies in the Catholic Church. And similar things are happening in every different religious community. It's sad, it's difficult, but it also is a moment of real possibility for reasons we could discuss. But I I I think I, I think the fact that we have to add those qualifiers in some ways means first it means that our communities themselves are changing. Second, it means that we're changing. And third, it means that we're more and more of us are becoming adults (laughs) and we're saying I'm responsible for what I support and what I don't support. And I want to make that clear.
0: John made a connection earlier um, in saying that when we're, when um, Brian was talking about, uh, Christians who were, were having to live in this, con, you know, confidential world, reading his book, it—it's um, like coming out or being outed as a queer person,
2: yeah. um,
0: and it strikes me that the queer community is facing the exact same thing, just with an extra flare of religious trauma. And I thought that was absolutely yeah. a good reflection. So I don't know if you want to uh, address that or answer that, but then I know Ron has a question too.
1: Well, let me just say um, I think that is brilliant and it's accurate. In fact the gay community, all of us who are alive right now, we, we have to realize how fortunate we are because in a sense, we got to watch what normally might take a hundred or 150 or 200 years. We got to watch it happen in 10 years. I was just hearing today that it was 10 years ago. I think today that Joe Biden said that he was supportive of gay marriage and he got in trouble during the, you might remember. Um, uh, And 10 years later, or I guess it was yesterday, or was it today that Congress passed a law protecting gay marriage. And you just think we got to witness something that normally would take a couple of generations, be accelerated in a very short amount of time. Uh, And it involved people having the courage to come out, building enough momentum in that process because it's only by people coming out that lets other people know that their stereotypes were wrong. Yeah. It's such a big risk, but it's also this huge, the best kind of data dump into the world. Like now we know all these people and we won't just believe what other people are saying about them. You know, I just think it's a really great analogy. And in a certain sense, by more of us having the courage to say, I'm a Christian, but not that kind of Christian, it's us saying, letting people know There's options here. Not everybody is like that, and that gives not only me freedom to be true to who I am, but it, in a sense, the more it happens, it opens up freedom for more people. So, thanks. That's really good. Thanks for bringing that out, Dana. Was it? It's Ron. Yeah. Let's let's hear from you, Ron.
3: Well, uh, one chapter that resonated with me was chapter ten, the title because Christianity is a sinking, shrinking. Ship of wrinkling people, (laughs) having just turned 70 recently. When I go to church, I I mean, it's in, in front of us all, you know, that the congregation is aging along with the general population. And I think one answer to this is what we just discussed is, you know, having an open congregation of all types of people. That's something that attracted me to this particular church that they had women leadership and they were involved in uh, having an open uh, congregation, unlike a lot of other churches. You know, how, but how can we, you know, I, I think the elephant in the room is what's gonna happen five, 10 years from now as the congregation ages out and how are we gonna get families back in, involved with the church to Maintain the congregation. So I think inclusion is is one attempt or or way of doing that. But do you have other ideas how we can attract younger families back?
1: Ron, it's such a great question. Thanks. And I just love the spirit that you asked it in. As you were speaking, you brought to mind an experience I had a few years ago with the very opposite spirit, sort of. I'll tell you what happened. I, I was speaking to a Lutheran synod. Uh, so it was synodical gathering. So it was Lutheran clergy and lay leaders. And I gave a talk. I was asked to give a talk. And when I finished and they opened up for questions, a woman came to the mic and said, your talk really bothered me. She said, I'm a lay person. My minister is right over there. And she pointed to him and he'll tell you what I'm about to say is a hundred percent true every single change that he has proposed i have opposed it (laughs) i've been against every single one and then she said and what bothered me about your talk is i've been sure i was right and he was wrong (laughs) and she said and now you're making me wonder if i've been wrong and here's what she said it was like she was thinking out loud in front of everybody she said i want to keep the church the way i like it and the way it's always been for me and now all of my children and all of my grandchildren are far from the church and far from God. And maybe it's because of people like me. I mean, it was just this wow. stunning moment where she sort of, I, I, I didn't even think she knew what she was going to say when she started talking. I think a couple of things first, and and I promise you, Chelsea didn't pay me to say this, but to have younger pastors is this incredible blessing for congregations like you, but it also gives you an incredible responsibility so that people would have your attitude and not the attitude that that woman had had before that day at the Lutheran Synod. That in a certain sense, I think one of the things that older people have to do is sort of make a deal with with their, pastor, their pastors. They have to say something like this, look, I hope you will take good care of me. I hope you won't forget about me. I hope you'll be my pastor through this stage of life, because look, all of us who are getting older—I'm just a couple of years behind you, Ron—we understand that you you kind of need pastoral help as you get older in a way you didn't really need it for a, a lot of years. And so, I think we need to be able to say, oh, I, "I trust you'll be there for me, but I want to get behind you in doing what you need to do in reaching the younger generation. If you need to go against some people of my generation to bring about changes." I've got your back and I'll talk to them for you. And I understand that those of us who are paying the bills right now aren't gonna be around forever. And we have to be willing to now prepare the way for coming generations. Sometimes what that means is, well, it can mean a hundred different things, but what it means is permission is given to young clergy to take good care of their older parishioners, but for that to not be their whole job description and to give them freedom to help their congregation reach out to more and more people. I think there are two main groups of people that a congregation like yours needs to be thinking about. I'm going to be very specific. I hope you don't mind. Um, The first one is, I think you have to be thinking about young evangelicals and Catholics, because young evangelicals and Catholics are leaving church in droves. They're being driven away really, really fast, and they need to find a place that will welcome them and that will let them be angry if they're angry. Let them be traumatized because a lot of them have been victims of trauma. Let them doubt and question, and let them be who they are. Also, if somebody from a very conservative theological background comes in to a very progressive church and they refer to God as he all the time, it can sound very grating to people who've gotten to a point where they don't use male pronouns for God anymore, and they jump on those people, and those people feel unwelcome, almost in a reverse fundamentalism. You see, there's a kind of progressive intolerance that can happen. So I would say the first group you think about is the young evangelicals and young Catholics, especially in your area, who need an off-ramp from their current congregation and denomination, perhaps, and they need an on-ramp into a more open and inclusive community. That's the first group I'd think about. And then the second group I'd think about or what I would you know what a lot of people call the spiritual, but not religious. And there are people who the only version of Christianity that they were exposed to is one that they don't want any part of and that you don't want any part of either. and to to become a hospitable place for those folks is is a big deal. So I would just say, if you were to think very and obviously, you welcome anybody who wants to come. But those would be two groups of people I would think a lot about and think, how could we become, what, what are obstacles for those people? What would be welcome signs for those people? Those would be questions I'd ask. Okay, I just wanted to reflect on something that Ron was talking about. In 2017, we had a lot of kids in our church. Pandemic blew us out. The other, th- the other question that I want to ask is, what is the effect of the acid drip of media that want to always toss us garbage. Tell me what, what, what kind of garbage you mean. I want to be sure I understand. In general, it is to tell people that the world is a terrible place. I see. Yes. The negativity. And that people cannot be trusted. Do not have faith in leaders. Yeah, Paul, first, thanks so much for mentioning the children. And obviously, COVID really threw a loop for an awful lot of families. If there was one other, if I could go back and uh, amend what I was just saying a minute ago, I would say there ought to be three groups you really focus on. And and the first would be all of those parents who dropped out during COVID. And one of the things I I wrote a, about this a little bit in my book, Faith After Doubt, and I also wrote about it in the book before that called The Great Spiritual Migration. Uh, let me say it like this. All of you who have, you know, have adult children, and especially if you have grandchildren, I think you will understand what I'm trying to say. The hardest time in a person's life in general is when you have young children. There are problems in other times of life. But there is never a, a period of life where the demands on you are so high as when young young children. When you combine that with the second thing you said, Paul, about all the negativity being poured in, and never has there been a time when you as a parent have so many negative forces bombarding your children. The challenges that young parents face right now, to me, one of the smartest things congregations can do is to say, how can we become a source of support for every parent in our region, in our, our, you know, in our area who is trying to do a good job raising children, whether or not they come to our church on Sunday and whether or not they become a Christian, how can we get, how can we be known for this? Because it's really true that we offer resources to help young parents and children. My goodness, it's, it's super, super important and and those two your those two things i think as you see really do go together and so what parents in a sense need is they can't trust the neighborhood anymore to do what you used to or, or you know as they say it takes a village to raise a child it's harder and harder you, that there are fewer and fewer places where the village is a given. And so now, in many ways, faith communities like yours can become the intentional villages that people find and are invited into that give them support in this. Look, when I look back over my life, way more important than the books I've written or the ministry I've done was that, you know, I poured my life into my kids and now I'm pouring my life into my grandkids. And that's the most I feel in. For those of us who have children, and many many people don't, and they have wonderful lives and they have wonderful things they do too. But for those of us who have children, you, we just, man, we need help. And, and so thank you for bringing that up. And it's one of the main reasons why a lot of parents don't want to bring their kids to church is because... They think, I do not want to inflict upon my children what was inflicted upon me in church. But then they think, so I'm going to stay away. And now their children get virtually no spiritual input. And that's why congregations like yours are really, really needed. So thanks for that.
0: That was one of my questions for you. You say in the book about how, like now that you have kind of um, come into a more expansive form of Christianity, some of the things that you would do different as a parent, I have young children and appreciate what you just said. And um, w- my goal as a, their parent is to teach them theology that I know they'll have to re-examine later because that's the f- process of faith, but to teach them the least amount of toxic Christianity <laughs> that I can. I just, I wonder if you have tips for-
1: Oh boy. Um, well, Chelsea, this is a subject like I'm just, I care about so much and I'm so glad you asked about this. I, I don't want to go too far afield on this, but I'll just tell you all that there's a group that is in the process of trying to form right now, Christian educators, people who do parenting blogs and write parenting books from a more progressive Christian perspective that is trying to come together right now to grapple with how do we make more of the, these resources available. And it's kind of in the developmental stage right now. When it goes public, um, you'll see something on my website, which is just brianmclaren.net, because I'm trying to, I'm giving money to it. I'm you know, I'm trying to give some moral support to it. I want to see something like this get off the ground. So this is really close to my heart. By the way, on my website tomorrow, brianmcclaren.net, I will have an announcement about a parallel thing that's happening for college students, but that's another story.
0: We will make sure to post the link so everybody can. Oh,
1: good. But Chelsea, I I have maybe two tips um, that I could offer. The first would be What is more important than telling a child what to believe is showing a child how to believe. Mm -hmm. And the way we show our children how to believe is by being transparent about the difficulties as well as the joys. I think we have to be transparent about the joys. We really do. You know, that means you're driving home from church one Sunday and the kids are in the back seat. You say to them, hey, kids, can I tell you something? Sure. Mom, what's up? I really had something happen to me during church today. I felt like I really felt the spirit of God touching my heart about something and can I tell you about it? You know to to be to be transparent about our spiritual experiences, but then also to be transparent uh, I'm really having questions about this or you know I'm a committed Christian, but boy when I hear Christians do what that guy just did on the news tonight, it just breaks my heart to to let all of that show. I think is is really important because it's the it, it's it the how is way more important um, than the what. Uh, that's the first thing I'd say. Um, I know some people would disagree with me on that, but I also think even the people who disagree with me could see the point I'm trying to make. And then the second thing I would say, I would invite m- my kids into, let me call it the interpretive community, and what I mean by that is. I would always, you know, if you hear, if the kids hear a sermon, or if you read a Bible story together, or you, I I would always ask the kids, what do you think that means? And I would ask kids questions like, do you think that story needs to be true to have a meaning? Did it have to actually happen? Or could it have a meaning without it happened? In other words, you, you ask them questions to get them talking. We adults eventually realize this. We learn more when we're talking than when we're being talked at. So- I think it's true in many ways for for kids, uh, especially kids when they get to eight or nine years old and their own interpretive frameworks start to expand. So, and I would be on the front end of that. I would be handing kids as much interpretive responsibility and opportunity as as I could as early as they were interested in it. So, I hope that's helpful.
2: Hi, Brian.
1: Hey, Angela. Nice to meet you.
2: Nice to meet you too. I want to say um, thank you for your work. First of all, when I was uh, deconstructing in seminary, you made me feel less crazy. (laughs) Labels, uh, they can be helpful. They can be unhelpful. I know people, the younger generation wants to not use as many labels because they don't want to be trapped within an identity that isn't it could be real today and not real tomorrow. And there's a sense of fluidity. And then when we come to the label of Christian, that's helpful and that's unhelpful mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes. And I know there are people who are incredibly spiritual, who don't like the the word Christian um, and cannot ever ever because of the toxicity and the abuse of the church ever identify with that word ever again. Uh, what do we do as clergy when we are called to, I'm committed to Christ, but again, there are, there's the fundamentalists who, um, or the evangelicalism that says, well, I'm just a follower of Jesus. And that's another form of toxicity. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't even want to say that because that's been claimed for abuse. Where? How do we journey with people spiritually when people cannot ever claim the word Christian in an authentic, meaningful way? I see it all the time. People are wanting to come to church. They're connected to me somehow, uh, but they don't want to enter into our traditional service or they don't want... They will never claim the word the word Christian. Anyways, I can go on and on about this. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to that? Yeah.
1: Well, Angela, it's uh, it is such an important question. First, could I just ask, uh, does everybody on the call do you understand how important that question is, and do you understand how each of you, in a sense, could play a role in the answer? And and here's what what I mean. And in fact, maybe I could just tell two quick stories. They come from like more than 16 years ago when I left it before while I was still a pastor but we had a lot of people in that category in my congregation and we had this uh we had this group in the church that did drama like they were into drama we would have like a, a play maybe a major play every year and these were not religious plays they they would Do different kinds of drama and improv. And sometimes they do things in the services. And there was uh, one woman in the drama group who became very beloved. She was a great actor. She'd gotten involved in the group because some of the other people involved in the group were friends with hers from a community theater group. And so she was very beloved. She was a good actor. But I knew that she was an atheist. She'd been brought up in a strain of Buddhism that was non theistic. And she loved our church. But she did not, you know, didn't believe in God and didn't want to be called a Christian. So I was preaching. I can't even remember what I was preaching about, but I, uh, I said to her, um, Would you be willing to tell your story to the congregation? And she was a little nervous, like, Can people handle it? I said, Well, they better, you know, let's make sure they handle it, you know. And so one Sunday, as part of the sermon, she came up and she said, Well, I guess I just want to, let you all know that I'm not a Christian. I've never been a Christian. I came to this church because John over there invited me. And it's been one of the best experiences of my life. I've never believed in God. And if I ever do, it will be be because I've been welcomed into this community. And it was just this beautiful, like transparent. She was just herself, you know, what that did for our congregation. I I had a couple people who were quite upset with me about it, but I had all these other people who just thought it was the best Sunday they'd ever experienced because they realized we love you and we love you. You don't need that label for us to love you and you're part of our community. So that's one quick story. Second story, there was a guy who came to the church. I never met him and he came up to me one Sunday and said, I've been coming here for a year. I've never had the courage to meet you, but I thought I should introduce myself. He said, "I'm here because of your next door neighbor, Eileen," and I said, "Uh, "Okay." uh, uh, He said, "I go to the same synagogue as Eileen. I'm I'm a Jew." He said, and I went up to Eileen one day and I said to her, "You know, I come to synagogue every week, but I don't even know if I believe in God or I don't know if there's anything real behind all this. I don't even know what the point is." And my neighbor said that I should visit your church. (laughs) So he said, I visited, and I keep coming back. And he said, almost every Sunday, you know, you would have no way of knowing this, because I always sit in the back, almost every Sunday I cry. I don't even know why I'm crying. He said, but I feel like God is part of my life now. I see God everywhere. And this year has just changed my life, so I just wanted to let you know. He said, I guess I should become a Christian <laughs> I said, Oh man, please don't become a Christian, please. I said, if you become a Christian, my next door neighbor will kill me (laughs) because we were good friends. I, I said, you, we didn't ask you if you were a Christian when you came here, everything we've had has been yours. First Sunday you came, everything we have will always be yours. And I said, you're a Jew. Don't stop being a Jew. If you're a Jew, who's gained a lot from our congregation, be part of both congregations. Uh, anything you get from us, you can share with them. Anything you have from them, you can share with us. And so those are just two stories of, of how I think people like us have to help people realize that they were the exception 20 years ago. In 20 years in the future, I think it's going to be the rule. One of the things that's changing when Chelsea said earlier, I'm a Christian, but not that kind of Christian that I think is changing is this idea that I'm a Christian, which means I'm in competition with every other religion. But I think what more and more of us are saying is because I'm a Christian, I live harmoniously with people of other religions. I respect people of other religions. I want to work with people of other religions for the common good. I don't do that in spite of being a Christian. To me, that's what being a Christian leads me to do. So I hope that two stories maybe help in some small way.
0: One of the things we talked a lot about in our weekly meetings, um, you talk about conservative Christians, they feel this need to hold on to this white guy in the sky, this image of God, and they fear if it goes away that their Christianity goes away. And many of us were resonating on that or reflecting on that. And we have conservative people that in our lives that we love, that, you know, we, I guess. I hope, I would hope that they would enter into a new form of Christianity. What are some tools or some some pointers that we can kind of engage with our conservative Christian friends without making them feel defensive? But yeah. what you were talking about before like the permission giving or the you know how how what's the best way to approach our conservative Christian friends?
1: Well, you know, a place where I tried to do this and I was not at all um I wasn't delicate about this. I was very direct, but you remember the chapter I wrote about our legendary founder. I wrote a chapter about Jesus and I told us, I recounted a really interesting pair of stories in the gospels um, that have, you know, really different details and so on. Um, And I talked about, than how some people feel an obligation to interpret the Bible literally. So what I tried to do in that chapter is I tried to say, look, if you want to interpret the Bible literally, you're welcome to. I I don't want to take that away from you. But I hope you can at least understand how other people don't take the Bible literally and they still find it meaningful and they still find truth and guidance and wisdom in it. So I think what people... Chelsea, like you and I have to do as leaders and so on, is we have to stake out and let people know what's safe. And and sometimes it goes both ways. In, in other words, we have to tell the people who want to take everything literally, you need to make room for the people who don't. And we have to tell the people who don't, you have to make room for the people who do. And And what's so interesting to me about this is the place in the New Testament, as you well know, where this is dealt with, Head on is in First Corinthians chapters 12, 13 and 14. It really goes back to like chapters eight and nine, where very deep boundary issues and in, in, as people understood God, God, you know, in, God doesn't want people to eat pork, and God really doesn't want people to eat meat that was offered at idle, idolatrous temples. But other people were eating pork and eating meat from temples and they didn't care. And so Paul has to try to help these people say, it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. Uh, What matters is that you're loving to each other. In fact, each person can be right. And each person could be wrong depending on their ability to love. And what that leadership, it seems to me, is doing is shifting from being right on the opinion to being loving in the heart and the attitude. And that, to me, is one of the most central things that I think the Christian faith is trying to grow into right now, is to graduate from being right about beliefs to being right about what the highest priority is, which is learning to become loving people uh, who embody and grow in that kind of transcendent love. I can say it, but it's it's this deep process of unlearning and relearning (laughs) for ourselves and others too.
0: Which is why it's helpful. One of your tips for the children was it's more how is more important than what. So how we love our neighbors is more important than what our neighbor and I think a lot of times for progressive liberal, whatever you want to call it, we do or I do get on my high horse of what's right and I've moved past that and I'm more mature or whatever I've evolved and I can get in the same place that I feel conservatives often are with like my stance staked in the sand and whatever so
1: And you know so much of this as you know as a but I think all of us learn this as we get more more mature is there's a story behind almost everything for everybody and To try to deal with the issue without dealing with the underlying story in that person's life, it never gets us very far. When I gave one of my very first sermons, this is 20 years ago, maybe more than 20 years ago, but I gave one of my first sermons about LGBT uh, equality. I had a guy just spitting nails mad at me, and uh, he was so angry. So I said, well, look, we don't have this is right after the service. I said, look, we don't have time to talk about this now, but let's let's be sure to talk this week. So we set up a time. He came and we actually took a walk out in the in the fields behind our church, and he confided to me something I'd never known. He he said, "Look, I was raised in foster homes, and I was sexually molested by three different foster fathers." Well, in his mind, homosexuality was what his foster fathers did to him, and nobody had ever explained that there's a difference between child abuse and being gay. And so I did not convince him of that in that walk that afternoon. But at least I understood why he was so animated by this. This tapped into all the trauma that he'd been living with since he was a you know, poor little kid in foster care. So instead of just seeing him as a conservative, bigoted person, I saw him as a damaged person person who is trying to cope with his trauma. And that doesn't make everything easy. It at least I think helps us deal with reality a, a, a little bit more.
0: Okay. So Alan's question is um, relative to chapter 25, reconsecrate everything. I t- I attended an interfaith Thanksgiving service in Chula Vista last week. Lovely people, but the homily, the discussions on pilgrims in particular were disturbing to me. So I want to meet with other Christians, but is this a good thing when you can't comment when you can't comment or have a negative, did I read that right, Alan?
4: Yes. I mean, basically what I'm saying is that we want, it was, uh, uh, it was also happened at a couple of uh, memorial services where the music chosen was very different uh, and including the national anthem at one of them. Uh, And it's a difficult situation where you have to smile, uh, but do you want to encourage other people to be involved in this inter, interfaith service where the yeah. message was not exactly the message that, I w- that our pastor would give or we would hear in our church.
3: Oh,
1: Alan, I, I, I bet if we ask for a show of hands, a lot of people have been in those awkward, painful, difficult um, situations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have any advice for you in that, Alan, except to say that I commiserate. I feel the pain. I'm in those situations very often. It, yeah. And it's different when you're participating in something public than when you're just in a one-on-one conversation. You know, um, I, I'm a firm believer that if you're in a, a conversation, a small group, that m- m- here's my little mantra, if this is of, of value to anybody, it's, wow, I see that differently five words. Wow. I see that differently. And then people almost always will say, well, what do you mean? And then I, I will say, generally, I don't really need to go into it now, but if if uh, if you ever want to ask me about it in private, I'll be glad to talk about it in private, but I just want you to know, I really see that differently. That's what I do if it's in a with one-on-one or in a small group of people. I call it the courage to differ graciously. I don't need to convince them that I'm right or that they're wrong, but I don't want to you have the idea that silence would mean tacit agreement. But in a larger group, it, it's very hard to know what to do. Something that might be constructive in a situation like that would be to go to the organizers afterward and said, I came to this. I know you put a lot of work into it. I'd like to share with you an experience I had uh, while I was sitting there when this was said and when this was done. And there might've been 10 things. I would just choose one or two because if you give too many, they'll they'll just tune you out, but give one or two and just say, so this ended up being a really uncomfortable experience for me. Um, I, I'm not sure if I sh- want to come back next year, but I wondered, do you understand why this was uncomfortable for me? And are, are you okay with that? You know, something like that. That's, not easy. Yeah. Not Thank
4: easy. you. I think it's the 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 concern is that uh, people go along to these yes, and they hear, you know, it sort of goes over their head and it's, oh well that's a different message than we're getting in our church yes and it's it's very difficult because you can't stand up and say hey or you can't get in touch with the past. your own pastor you can easily have discussions with and say look you know oh, you know and i had that discussion with our pastor today because one of the hymns that, that we had last sunday uh was fitted into a category in your in that chapter and said i think we need and he's very very good yeah, no problem with that, uh, progressive. But it's yeah. like I think we need to be a little bit more careful at times in some of the hymns that we sing and the yeah. message that's in them. You know, we've been singing them for hundreds of years, but that doesn't mean they're in their the, the <laughs> message is what we want nowadays.
1: They may have reached their at the end of their uh, they they've reached the end of their use by date.
4: Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: I know we're we're at the end of our time together. I have to ask you this question. We ask this question to all of our guests, but I think particularly I'm curious in your question Brian, what is your hope for the church?
1: Chelsea, my hope is exactly what's happening in you and your and the hearts of all of you uh, in this circle. This is a process. It's not something that we flip a switch or turn a dial and it changes. It's a change process that happens in people. And it's obviously happening in all of you uh, and and, and you're, you're experiencing it. And the thing I can tell you, it's happening in hundreds of thousands of other people as well. If you want an interesting example, I have a friend named John Pavlovitz. It's oh. P-A-V-L-O-V-I-T-Z. He has a blog. And if you look at his blog today, his blog looks like it could have been the introduction to this book, right? Or it could have been the conclusion because he he just has such a great spirit uh, in the way he uh, talks about this. So this is happening; it's happening all around. And I guess my hope is that this thing that's happening will let keep running its course. Something's going on in the news right now that might be that might help us. In fact, two things we could look at two different we could look at three different places right now. So in Iraq, we know that women are coming out in the streets and men as well calling for change um, in in china we know that people are coming out into the streets calling for change in russia they're not coming out into the streets but we know that the the desire for change is is building and the threats of punishment are are building and when we look and say what do we hope happens there we, we are, we're not unrealistic we don't think everything's going to be fine in iraq overnight, or everything's going to be fine in China overnight. Everything's going to be fixed in Russia by next week. But I think what we hope is that that desire for a better life and a better way of living and a better country and so on, that that desire won't be squashed. And that even when the people who are taking the courageous positive steps experience setback, we hope that that they won't give up. And, mm-hmm. and we hope they'll have resilience and endurance. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I hope too. And I must say, i am just super encouraged you all increase my hope, just uh, meeting you all and being with you tonight. So thank you.
0: Well, Brian, we are grateful. I mean, I can't say it enough, um, not just for this conversation, but for the book and the work that you put out into the world, for the way that you are uh, trailblazing for a new form of Christianity and giving people permission to just think differently about things that we have um, been taught and things that we hold and just really permission to hold a more expansive, loving, compassionate way of being Christian. So just thank you for the work that that you do. We appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you all so much. Thank you for your leadership and this invitation. Blessings to all of you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel and newsletter and keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective Table.